Now we come to this 11th chapter in the great sin of David. And here, of course, is where the enemy moves in and where the enemy finds fault. And I think very candidly, he has a right to find fault of this man David. And we're going to look at it. I'll look at this actually in depth. And we want to face right up to the fact what David has done. God doesn't say it's not sin. God's going to call it sin. And David will be punished for it. That is something folks seem to forget. And we'll see how David responded to that. Now I'm coming to chapter 11, verse 1, and reading. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem." Now, we have something here that I think is quite interesting to note. It was at the time of the year when kings went forth to war. In other words, in that day, there was an open season on each other, like there's an open season today on birds and animals. A certain season you can shoot them, other seasons you cannot. But after all, isn't that true even in modern warfare today? When they're having the monsoons, had the monsoons in Vietnam, why the war was, as the commentator said, slowed down, which actually meant it came to a standstill because it was absolutely a bog in the swamps and the rain kept the planes out of the air. So it was practically a standstill. And then, after the monsoons, it opens up again. So this may be a great deal more modern than we think that it is. The weather in that day had a great deal to do with it. Unfortunate thing is that in the two world wars that we had, probably the greatest suffering in Europe was the suffering during the winter from the weather rather than from the enemy. As we read many times during World War II, it was the weather that was the big enemy and actually the one that hindered more than any other. But they attempted to carry it on. But at least in David's day, there was just a certain season for warfare. Maybe they were civilized and maybe a little more civilized than we are. They at least recognized there was a time that you could have comparative peace. Now, it was at this time, and David sent Joab to fight the children of Ammon, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, this was unlike David. You wonder why. And I only have a suggestion to make. I'm of the opinion that David, having built his palace, found it very comfortable. It was quite different from the cave of Adullam. If you want to compare the cave of Adullam, where David spent his youth with this particular palace that was built for him, there was quite a difference. There was luxury, and there was great comfort. And I'm of the opinion that David loved Mount Zion, that David wanted to hang around Jerusalem. 
This is the thing that's trapped so many men and women, for that matter. Actually, our prosperity today has become a curse to us, and our comforts have become a curse to us in this nation of ours. David tarried still in Jerusalem. That was his first mistake. He should have been out yonder with his men. And ordinarily, David was with his men. But he stayed in Jerusalem. He's in the wrong place at the right time, or the wrong time, let's say. Now let me read verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, David was on the roof, and in that day, by the way, the roof was the place they went in the afternoon. They had no front porch. They had no patio in the rear of the homes in that day. Jerusalem, even today, if you look at the old city, it's very compact, and the flat roof became the place where the family gathered, and this natural is the place where David was. But David apparently was a little nervous. We're told that he walked upon the roof. Back and forth he's going. I suppose that he had a great many problems on his mind. His men were out in the field, probably conscience bothering him. And he looked over and he saw this woman bathing on the roof of her place. Now, let me say that I do not intend to absolve Bathsheba of this sin for the very simple reason it was David's sin. God put the blame right on David. But the thing is, she was certainly a contributing factor to it. She could have been a little bit more modest. And I know I'm going to sound, oh, am I going to sound like a square right now. But we're living in a day when woman's dress has become a great temptation to man. We take so many things for granted. I wonder how many women, even Christian women, might realize the thing that they are doing today. I'd be willing to develop that just a little bit farther. I've been in many churches today. I've seen a soloist get up and sing a solo that would carry you to the gates of heaven. Then I've seen her sit down and carry you to the gates of hell. May I say to you that this woman, Bathsheba, is partly guilty. What's she doing up there in public, bathing like this? And when I say public, certainly David was able to see her from the palace. And I might wonder if maybe that might have been that thought in her mind all along, knowing actually the reputation of David. Now, notice what David does. He'd been out with his men on the field. This, of course, wouldn't have happened. If Bathsheba had been down in the house somewhere, it wouldn't have happened. Now, verse 3, And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, she's a Hittite. She actually was a foreigner. And David sent messengers and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. 
This is the story, and it's put here in pretty plain, simple, brief language. But you can't miss the point, can you? And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Now David has a real problem. And the real problem is what's he going to do in a position like this? Because her husband happens to be one of his mighty men, one of his followers. Now notice verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. In other words, David pretended that he'd brought him back for consultation to find out how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house, wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. In other words, he was doing everything he could in this particular instance to try to absolve himself of any guilt. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And this is something that really surprised David. It reveals the loyalty of Uriah. It also reveals that at a time of war, that this man would not go to his own home. And that was a rebuke to David because David is enjoying the luxury of his palace. Verse 10, When they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? You see, what David's trying to do is to get him in the position where David will not be blamed for the child, you see. Verse 11, And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as thou livest and as thy soul liveth? I'll not do this thing. Uriah was a great man, by the way, loyal to David, and that made this sin, the double sin, all the more greater. You see, he said, the army's out there, and my commander's out there. They're in danger in the open field, and I'm not about to come back home and enjoy luxury and comfort. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also and tomorrow, and I let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he went not down to his house. Now notice what David did. He even got the man drunk, trying to get him to go to his own house, but he wouldn't go. came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And to my judgment, this is the worst part of David's sin. He wrote in the letter, saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. In other words, he plots the murder of Uriah. Now, this is inexcusable. The Word of God records it here. If you think God approved of it, 
he would have covered this up. But God didn't. It's right out here in the open. These are the facts, and David is guilty. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab. And there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. This chills your blood, does it not? Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approach ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall, and he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us, and came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sower devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Now this is very pious talk from David, by the way. Aren't you ashamed of him? He's a real sinner, friend. Done an awful thing. What should be done to him? All right, notice verse 26, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she moaned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done, do you notice what I'm getting ready to read? But the thing that David had done pleased the Lord? No, my friend. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David didn't get by with it. David, from this moment on, it's his troubles. Up to this point, it's his triumphs. But from here to his dying day, there'll be trouble. And may I say to you today, Christian friend, you can sin, yes. Somebody asked me the other day, they were a little shocked that I think a Christian could get drunk. And I shocked them. I said, yeah. Well, they said, my, that's terrible. I said, it sure is. Well, then, can they get by with it? And I said, oh, that's where the rub comes in. The man of the world will get by with it. The Lord's not whipping the devil's children, but he sure takes his own to the woodshed. And will you take it from one who's been to the woodshed? I happen to know. May I say you don't get by with it, friend? 
when you sin, David's not going to get by with it. The thing displeased the Lord. <laughs> and when a thing displeases the Lord, friends, he's going to do something about it. Now he's going to do something about it. And David now thinks he's gotten by with it. There are few who know the facts. Joab, his captain, knows the facts. Few of his intimate counselors in Jerusalem who went and got Bathsheba and brought her to the palace, they know. But beyond that, no one knows, and the lips of these men are closed. They would not dare open their mouth. But David wonders. David is sitting there on the throne, and he looks around him. He looks in each face. And I suppose that when David held court, there probably were a couple hundred people around him. David, I think, went down the line as he sat on the throne. He says, I wonder if they know. And he forgot that there was someone that he loved that did know, and he was going to do something about it. So one day as David is there sitting on the throne, he's looking over the faces of those that are about him and wonders if anybody knows. And when he goes over the faces, scans all of them, I think he sits back in satisfaction. And he's saying to himself, I got by with it. Nobody knows. My friend, I think it was open scandal in Jerusalem. But it was one thing for sure. Our secret sins here, we're told, are open before him. Or someone has put it, Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God knew all about it. Now, friends, that is the record in detail of the awful sin of David. The Bible does not play it down at all. And very candidly, this sin of David stands out like a tar baby in a field of snow, like a blackberry in a bowl of cream, and like a black sheep in a flock of sheep on a hillside. Now, the sin of David may cause us to miss the greatness of the man. The sin is the exception in his life. It was not the pattern of his life at all. David didn't live like this all the time. There are some that do. And when they do, why, they're not God's man. God's man can't live like this. He may get in sin, but he won't stay in sin. That is the thing that will characterize him. That is the thing that distinguishes between God's man and the man of the world. God's man may get in sin, he won't stay there. A sheep may fall in the mud, but he won't like it. He'll get out of the mud. A pig will stay right in the mud. Now, we have here this that we need to note, this sin. We're not going to play it down. Actually, I should say you can put a penny on your eye and blot out the sun. So let's be very fair as we look at it and look at it just as God's given it to it. And God has said, by the way, that men are like a piece of pottery. They can get marred. One flaw can ruin a valuable piece of pottery. A valuable article is put on sale, and the merchant says it has one flaw in it. 
And I notice that sometimes you see a sale in a store, and I'm graded as I go about over the country. When I see a sale, I beat it down to the store. And I find that first-grade merchandise will become second-grade merchandise. And they'll say, now, this is marked down because there's a little flaw in it. And you're going to have to mark David down because of his sin. And I'm not going to play down the sin of David again today at all. Last time we saw it in all of its blackness and ugliness. The Word of God does not soft-pedal it. The Word of God doesn't whitewash David at all, and we're not going to do that. His sin is as black as ink. It's as dark as night. It's as low as the underside of Satan in the bottomless pit, and it's as deep as hell. It's a sin, friend. Now, how could he be a man after God's own heart? Well, he wasn't a man after God's own heart in reference to this sin. You see, God did something about man's sin. He gave Christ to die to pay the penalty because the sin is that heinous. It's God who says that sin is so black it required the death of his son. But if you turn your back on God, you're lost. But on the other side, if you're God's man and you drop into sin, God's going to do something about it. He'll do something about David. We left David last time sitting on his throne in smug complacency. He thought he got by with this sin, but he didn't. God's going to do something about it. David's going to live to regret that he ever committed this awful sin. Now, will you notice chapter 12, verse 1? And this is dramatic now, let me tell you. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. This is, I think, one of the bravest men in Scripture, because David could have just lifted his hand and the scepter that was in his hand, not said a word, and they could have taken Nathan out and executed him for what he told David. And David's the kind of man that would execute him. We've already found that out, haven't we? Nathan's a brave man. Will you notice? But the Lord sent him. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Here's a little story that Nathan's going to tell David. A story where David can see himself in a mirror. And that's what the Word of God is. It's a mirror. It reveals us as we really are. And that's what Nathan's going to do, is hold up a mirror, the Word of God, to David and let him see himself. And I think that Nathan came in, God's prophet, and that probably a lull in state business. And David says to Nathan, do you have anything from the Lord for me? <laughs> and he does. Do you notice it? And here's the story. There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. That's a typical city, is it not? There's the ghettos, there's the slum, and out yonder's Beverly Hills, out yonder's where the rich live. This is the picture. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. That sounds very familiar. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him 
and with his children it did eat of his own meat, drank of his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. In other words, this little lamb was a pet, greatly loved by the family. And they fed it, and this was the pet of the family. And so all the poor man had. That rich man had flocks and herds. What a contrast we have here. This is the continual war between rich and poor. And very candidly, I think the great problem today is not a race problem. I think the great problem today is capital and labor, rich and poor. I believe that's always been the problem. And I don't think it's been racial. I think it narrows itself down to rich and poor today. Now, will you notice, Nathan is really telling a story here that's quite familiar, is it not? Now, will you notice, the poor man had nothing but the little ewe lamb. The rich man had everything. Verse 4, There came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. He was not a generous man. He was a skin plan, as you can see. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Now, let me say something to you. I do not digress or discuss politics on this program, as you can see. But I'd like to just put down what is a great principle in this world today of sin. I recognize that certain political parties say they have the solution to the problems of the world. They want to be elected to office. I have no confidence myself in man. I do not believe that any politician today is going to do the thing that will be for the good of the poor. I don't care who he is, what he said. He's not doing it for the good of the poor. Never has that been done. It's not being done today. Let's not kid ourselves about that. It's quite interesting. They talk about they need money for this poverty program. Who pays for it? Do they tax the rich? No. My taxes have gone up. I tell you, they're sure taking my little ewe lamb, friends. And that's the story. Oh, this is a real story, friends, that Nathan's telling And it's a very up-to-date story, by the way. Now, will you notice this? We'll see David in this in a moment. And they took the poor man's lamb, he dressed it for the man that was come to him. Now, when David heard that, he was a typical politician right now. And David had a sense of right and wrong. He had a sense of justice. And down deep underneath There was a faith that never failed. There was a love for God that was there, and it was warm and real. I'm reading verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. It's interesting. David knew that Nathan was not making up the story. He thought that he had brought this story in about somebody out in the kingdom, and he was asking for David to rule upon it. Well, David is this hot-headed, red-headed fellow I've been telling you about. Old David stood up now, held on to the arms there of the throne, and he says, where is that man? We'll arrest him. We'll execute him. It's interesting how you can see the sin in somebody else. Can't see it in your own life. 
And that was David's problem. Now listen to David. He's still talking. Verse 6, He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. My, David sounds like a preacher, doesn't he? So easy to preach to the other person and tell him his faults, tell him what he should do, and to absolutely analyze him. Most of us are psychologists who put other people on our own little critical couch, and then we give them a working over. And that's David. David says, wherever that man is, I tell you, we're going to do something about it. Now look at this man, Nathan. Right here is where he's, the, to my judgment, the bravest man in the Bible. I know no one that can compare to him. Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Thou art the man. May I say to you, he took courage to say that. He said, David, you've been found out. You are the one that's guilty. You are the one that did this. And you are the one that is as guilty as you can be. And now what's David going to do? Well, before we see what David's going to do, and he's going to do something that's unusual, I can assure you that. Dr. Margoliath has said this. He says, when has this been done before or since? Mary, Queen of Scots, would declare that she was above the law. Charles I would have thrown over Bathsheba. James II would have hired witnesses to swear away her character. Muhammad would have produced a revelation authorizing both crimes. Charles II would have publicly abrogated the Seventh Commandment, and Queen Elizabeth would have suspended Nathan. And the very interesting thing is the Duke of Windsor years ago would have given up a throne for her. And we've had some presidents that would have repealed the Ten Commandments and appointed Nathan to the Supreme Court. May I say to you, my friends, David didn't do any of these. Will you look now at what is going to happen? And now you'll begin to see the greatness of David. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house thy master's wives under thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. That is, God says, I'd have given you anything that your heart wanted if you would have asked me for it, and it would have been a right thing. Verse 9, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? to do evil in his sight. God said this was sin. After all, who said it was sin? It's God who said it. And somebody comes to me and says, Oh, how could God say that David's a man after his own heart when he committed such an awful sin? And I always like to say, Who told you it was such a great sin? It's God who said it was. It's God who made this a great sin. And today in the new morality, they're saying this is not sin. God still says this is sin. And God says the man after his own heart can't get by with it. David didn't get by with it, as we'll see. Listen to God now as he's speaking. Verse 9, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? 
Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Don't you imagine, friends, that that court there that day was shocked? Because there were many of them standing there that day that didn't know. And now they're hearing Nathan accuse David of the most brutal crimes that are written in the book. The things that God says, thou shalt not, David has done. Is he going to get by with it? Will you notice verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Now may I say, Christian friend, when the question rises, can you commit sin as a Christian? And the answer is yes, you can. But when you do, you despise God. That's what you do. God says that. I didn't say it. And God says, I won't let you get by with it. You're my child. David's not going to get by with it. Listen to what God says. Here the sword will never depart from thy house. And because you took the wife Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And friends, in the next chapter, a scandal breaks out among the children of David, and it's an awful thing. Heartbreak to this man. You will never find him whimpering or crying out to God about it, because David knew that God was putting a lash on his back. All David wanted is, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. He says, I'll take thy wives before thine eyes, give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou didst it secretly. But I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now listen to David. Now, David could have done many things, as we've said. Other rulers of the world would never have acted like David. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. David should have died, of course, for this. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that's born unto thee shall surely die. And friends, they still blaspheme God because of what David did. When I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles on many occasions, I had some vile person, unbeliever, skeptic come and say to me, how could God choose a man like David? And they would leer at you, you know. God says, you caused the enemy to blaspheme. Still blasphemes. God's going to take him to the woodshed. And Nathan departed unto his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. The elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. He would not, neither did he eat bread with him. He went before God and pled with God to spare the little fellow's life. And finally, why, they brought word to him that the child was dead. And verse 19, But when David saw that his servants whispered, 
David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He's dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Now, all of them are astounded. He had been in sackcloth and ashes. Now the child is dead and he should mourn and he's not mourning at all. Listen to him in verse 22. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You see, David knew the little one was saying. He said, I'll go to him someday. He could never come to me. A child dying in infancy goes to be with the Lord. Where it says in Scripture, it says their spirits or their angels are before my Father in heaven, speaking of the little ones. The word angel should be spirits. And it means when a little one dies that he goes immediately to be with the Lord today. That is the teaching of the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but it means a great deal to me because i got a little one up there and I'm looking forward someday to going and being with that little one, you know. David could rejoice now, but when Absalom later on dies, and that's another thing was a heartbreak to David. David wept and moaned. Why? Because he wasn't sure about Absalom, and he had a right to take that position. I'm not sure about him either, but I don't know. Verse 24, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And that means beloved of the Lord. And now we find David going back out to battle, and we find him in Joab, verse 26, fought against Rabbah of the children of Ammon, and they took the royal city. David now is back out in the field where he should have been all along. Now the question is, David's kingdom continues to be extended and expanded, and David becomes a great, great ruler of that day. What about the sin? Did he get by with his sin? Well, the very next chapter, and we'll find out that he had a son that committed an awful crime, that he raped his half-sister, a daughter of David, and Absalom, the full brother of the girl that was raped, he killed him, killed the other one. Say, that was a scandal. Can you imagine how that spread over Israel? They said, look at the king ruling over us. He can't even rule his own household. Look at the awful thing that's taking place yonder in the palace. Poor David. Honestly, before we get through with the life of David, I feel like saying to the Lord, Lord, you whipped him enough. You put the lash on his back. Why don't you take it off? You whipped him enough. But you know... David never said that. David went into the presence of God, and there's a psalm that goes with this chapter. 
I think you know which one it is. It's Psalm 51. David went in before God and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, cleanse me from thy sin. And then he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Bring me back, David says, into fellowship with you. That's the thing David wanted above everything on this earth. And David never whimpered or cried about this. David knew that this was that which was coming to him because of his sin. Oh, my friend today, a child of God just doesn't get by with it. That's all. Now, friends, we come today to this 13th chapter of Second Samuel. We have spent some time the past two times in talking about David's great sin. And the reason we pay attention to it is because we do not want to gloss over it, and we do not want to gloss over it because the Word of God does not gloss over it. It's a frightful, awful, terrible sin And that's just the way that the Word of God presents it. And that's the way that we want to present it, just as it is. We want to tell it as it is. Now, David committed an awful sin. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of adultery. And then added to that, he was guilty of misrepresentation. His base deceit in all of this. And the very interesting thing, when you get into sin, it's sort of like a fly getting stuck on fly paper. You put down one thing, and then that leads you to do something else. And so David found himself hopelessly enmeshed in an awful sin, and a sin that a child of God should not be guilty of at all. Now, the question is, did he lose his salvation? And of course, the answer is no. He did not lose his salvation. If you'll notice in that marvelous 51st Psalm, he said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He didn't say his salvation. He hadn't lost it, but he lost the joy. And that joy that came with fellowship with God. And this man had a passion and love for God that very few have. And he wants to be back in the relationship with God. Now, he just can't sin and get by with it. Now, I hear a great many people say, well, all you have to do today is just confess your sin, and you'll just bounce right back into position. You will as far as your fellowship and relationship is concerned. But if you think, my friend, you can go out and commit sin and then walk out of it and it not affect you, you certainly do not know very much about human nature. Because these things all affect us psychologically. All of these things have their effect upon us. And you just can't walk away from it. You'll be forgiven if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean that we do not still have the effect of it in our lives. What is that old bromide about if you're going to dance, you've got to pay the fiddler, somebody's got to pay him. And if you're going to indulge in sin, then there'll be the consequences. Or let the Lord 
give it to us straight. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, there's no question David is sown to the flesh. You think now he can walk away from this and make just a sweet little confession like a lot of people think they make today, and that's it? I heard one fellow say, well, the blood of Christ covers it. Sure does. <laughs> you don't lose your salvation, brother. But I want to tell you, underneath sometime there's that festering sower that's going to have to be lanced. Now, that brings me then to this 13th chapter. Now, David has made confession of his sin. God has told him, he says, you've caused my enemies to blaspheme me because of doing this. I won't give you up. Thank God he won't give us up. But you didn't get by with it, David. Now, chickens do come home to roost. It came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Ammon, the son of David, loved her. Now, it would be his half-sister, you see. David was the father of both of them. But they had different mothers. And Ammon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Ammon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. And Ammon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. He said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Ammon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. In other words... What he's saying is this, I'm madly in love with this girl. He wasn't eating. His friend could see that he wasn't eating, but he recognized who she was. She happens to be Absalom's sister, and he was afraid of Absalom. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down in thy bed, make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come, and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. So Ammon lay down, made himself sick. When the king was come to see him, Ammon said to the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Ammon's house and dress his meat. Now David is taken in just exactly like he did concerning Uriah. It's now happening to him the same way. He's being deceived and along this same line. And there's no use for me to read these gory details here. And the thing that happened was that this boy Ammon raped this girl, Tamar. And the thing was that after that, why, he hated her. We're told... In verse 15, here, Then Ammon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Ammon said unto her, Rise, be gone. See, this is an awful thing that has taken place in the house of David. And she was just absolutely flung out. And we are told here, verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head, rent her garment, divers colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. 
You see, she's thrown out of the house, and she now is in sackcloth and ashes. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Ammon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister, he's thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Now, he's angry, but David did nothing about it. David was like a great many other men in Scripture. He was an indulgent father who raised a bunch of bad kids. And that's happened again and again. You remember, it started with old Eli, God's high priest, preacher's son. My, were they something? And then we came down to Samuel. And you think Samuel being raised in that atmosphere... He'd be a disciplinarian. He would have disciplined his sons. He didn't either. And his sons turned out the same way. They were dishonest. And then we come now to David. And you'd think David by this time, he knew Samuel, knew Samuel's sons. You'd think that he'd say, I'm going to be a little more strict with my children. I'm going to raise them right. But he didn't. He was a very indulgent father. And we'll find out in another case that he was overindulgent. But here, he does nothing about it. He's angry about it. I think he lectured him, but there's no discipline at all. Now, again, I'm confident a great many of you people by now think I'm quite a square because I have been saying some old-fashioned things recently. And maybe it's because I'm now a retired preacher and I can say what I please, friend. That is, if I get by with it, I can say it. And... I think that I have been noted in my entire ministry as one who from the pulpit told it like it was. I have no apology to make for my ministry. I have many things that have been wrong and many things I've had to straighten out with the Lord. But you know, I always followed a policy on Sunday night of reporting to him about the week, about what I had preached. And I want to be very frank with you. I wish I could have preached better. I've always wanted to be a better preacher than I am. But the thing is, I never had to say to him, well, I pull punches today. I didn't really come out and say it, Lord, because I feared somebody. Well, I can say it like it is. And so let me now say it like it is. The problem today in Christian homes is the lack of example and discipline on the part of parents. Now, my friend, if you're a Christian and you've got a little boy in your home, don't spend your time lecturing him. You're not going to get anywhere. You better start doing something about it before you lose it. And you better start soon, because there'll come a day when he's going to walk out. May I say to you, David was an indulgent father. And that's another strike against David, by the way. David's not presented as a perfect man by any means. And the problem with many of us who've been in Christian work is that we have probably neglected our families for the sake of the work, and we've excused it on the basis of doing Christian work. And I must confess that if I had one thing to go back to, I... Now I have a little grandson, and I think he's the most wonderful little fellow in the world, and I thank the Lord for him and for his 
Papa and his mama. I think they're wonderful. But I'm enjoying him more than I enjoyed my daughter when she was a little baby. And you know why? Because I was so busy then. Now I can get with that little fella and I can spend some time with him. And I wish I'd spent more time with her when she was coming along. May I say to you, that's the thing that many Christians need to recognize today. And don't get the impression that you're raising a little angel. A great many parents treat their child as if it's a sort of a cross between an orchid and a piece of Dresden china. And if you apply the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge, that you're going to break him up, that he'll come apart some way. May I say to you, Proverbs says, if you beat him, (laughs) you won't kill him. And that's a very good idea to understand. You'll never kill him. This is a tremendous thing. I think we've been given here about this. And David did nothing. So what happened? Verse 22, Absalom spake unto his brother Ammon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Ammon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Now, this is David's home. This is home life, friend. He didn't get by with sin. God says you don't get by with it. Now, Absalom is just marking time and waiting for the day to come. And that day came. And I'm, again, not going into detail here, but when that day came, why, what happened? Well, Ammon was killed. Who killed him? Well, Absalom killed him. Let me just begin reading it, verse 33. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Ammon only is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons come. As thy servant said, so it is. You see, Absalom plotted actually against this boy, and he killed him. And now he has to flee. And since the other king's sons were invited to the party, it looked as if they might have been slain also. So that's what the messenger meant. Only Amnon is dead. And it came to pass, as soon as he made an end of speaking, that behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all of his servants wept very sore. But now notice, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And why did he go to king of Geshur? Because his mother was a daughter of the king of Geshur. And David, as we pointed out once before, made a mistake in marrying that foreign woman. And David mourned for his son every day. Now, David loved this boy Amnon also. Now he's slain. And in one sense, it is David's fault. He should have dealt with this sin in a definite way. Absalom waited to see. David would not move. And so Absalom bided his time. Now we read, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Nothing he can do about Amnon, but he wanted to bring Absalom back. And let me say here that Absalom was the favorite son of David. He is the son of Maacah, daughter of King of Geshur, a woman whom David married during his lapse of faith when he withdrew from the land. 
And he had of her two very attractive and beautiful children. One was Absalom and the other was Tamar. Now, apparently David did not discipline this wild boy, the son of a pagan and a Bedouin. And so this boy, though, seems to have been justified in one way since David would not take the matter in his own hand. And Absalom, after he had fled and spent time in the country, David wanted to bring him back, but he didn't. And David mourned for him, but he did nothing about that either. He just mourned for Absalom and wanted him. And this boy, by the way, I think is more like David than any of his sons. And I think it was obviously David's intention that Absalom succeed him. And I know Solomon wasn't his favorite, as we're going to see later on. Finally, after three years, David permitted Absalom to return to Jerusalem to his own house, but he wasn't permitted to see the face of the king. And this is what you call a half-hearted forgiveness.